Welcome to a special edition of the Experience Darden and the Exec MBA podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share my recent conversation with Professor Denny Kim. Denny is a member of the Strategy, Entrepreneurship, and Ethics faculty here at the Darden School of Business, and he was our recent guest on our ongoing Office Hours conversation series. This is a joint series hosted by the Admissions Office as well as Darden Ideas to Action, and during this conversation, Denny shares insights about U.S. healthcare, challenges, opportunities, and so much more. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with Denny Kim. All right, Denny. Big question here off the bat. Who are you? What's your background? Sure. So um, my name is Denny Kim. Uh, I am a Korean American, originally from Brooklyn, New York. Um, My family, my immediate family, my parents and younger sister still live in Brooklyn. Uh, My partner's actually based in The Hague in the Netherlands. She's an international lawyer. So it's been about a year and a half since I've seen any of them. but that's a little bit of where I'm from. Uh, most recently, before Darden, I was doing my PhD at the Carlson School of Business in University of Minnesota. All right. So, what led you to Darden? Oh boy. Um, well, if some of you may know about the academic job market and how uh, difficult it can be, Darden was a dream school for me um, because there were very few uh, really top research universities in the world that care as much about teaching as they do about research. Um, And so when I had the opportunity to interview here, um, there were several connections from Minnesota as well. Um, I knew I had to, you know, give it my all and and really convert this one. And, um, you know, I got really lucky. So you'd mentioned this passion for teaching that the faculty at Darden have. How did you discover that you wanted to teach? I, that's probably back to childhood. Um, I think maybe those on the call who can empathize with maybe not being the most athletic or, you know, kind of nerdy. I used to tutor friends and help them with homework um, just to, you know, that was a, a way to build social relationships. And through that, I realized that one, it helps me learn um, to try to communicate information to somebody else. Uh, but I really enjoyed seeing people improve at something um, or kind of get through a wall that was uh, previously standing in the way. So I discovered that pretty early on. And there are paths that people can consider, right? So teaching is maybe one of them. Are there any other alternate paths that you considered before deciding, you know, what I want to do is be a faculty member and teach? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, for a long time, thought I was going to be a medical doctor. Um, And I was pretty dead set on that path. Um, And then if you ask me now, if, you know, I could pick any other career, it may be something... Uh, more creative, you know, maybe in uh, the culinary arts. So being a cook or, you know, helping to run a, a restaurant or um, some sort of a, I guess, food service establishment, um, either that or, you know, maybe start my own whiskey distillery. <laughs> 
All right. I got to ask about a follow-up question about the cooking. I mean, what got you in? Is that something you've always done? Is that a pandemic hobby that's accelerated? Um, I recently? wish I could say it was. Um, it was more born out of necessity because uh, both of my parents worked. And so you pick up a little bit of basic culinary skills, um, you know, from myself and my younger sister after school. Um, and then that jump started in grad school. So when you're a PhD student, you, um, you, Got to learn how to survive. Is there a meal that takes you back always to uh, being a young kid in Brooklyn or being a PhD student, a, a broke PhD student in, in Minnesota? Yeah, it's definitely uh, Korean, which is very similar to Japanese style, but Korean curry over rice. That's you bake a big pot of that and that'll last you a week. You got you to make it stretch, right? So, oh, yeah. Um, so let's get let's get into what you teach here at Darden. So um, one sure. of the things that's been fun to, on these conversations is to talk with faculty about what they're teaching, why they they're teaching those classes, what they're excited about, and when it comes to working with Darden students in the classroom. So what are you teaching? So I teach first year strategy in the core. Um, so that's typically the second quarter, um, right in that time where everyone's busy recruiting. Uh, so it's a it's a busy busy period. And then in the fourth quarter, uh, also first year, I teach an elective on strategic analysis and consulting. What, how did you come up with the idea of strategic analysis and consulting? What brought you to teaching that particular class? So I used to be a, a strategy consultant. Um, this was immediately after undergrad. So it's, um, I guess, a line of work that I'm very familiar with. Also, it's one of the most popular career paths for Darden students. And when I joined, um, our colleagues told me that, hey, look, there's a need for this. Do you think you can you know, teach something like this? Uh, and I, you know, after doing the two years now of the course, I think, yes, absolutely. This is something I can do, something I really enjoy. And I think it's uh, valuable for the students. So what do you do in that class? I mean, what kind of cases are you reading? Are, are you doing things beyond just, just case discussions? Uh, what does that class look like? Yeah, there's um, about half of it is almost a continuation of first year strategy. And that is, you know, to build additional repetitions. So for those of you who don't know, a quarter at Darden is only seven weeks. That's not a lot of strategy, you know, and we, we feel like you can, well, especially with Q3 in the middle, you get this break. So quick refresher, let's hit some more strategic analysis topics in the uh, familiar case-based discussion. And then once we develop um, some better skills or deeper understanding, think about it in a more applied setting. So how that might translate to the job. All right, so you came to Darden intentionally, the focus on teaching, the emphasis on teaching. What do you enjoy about being with Darden students in the classroom? Darden students are one, they're just good people, uh, I find, which is always very helpful. Um, so they're very supportive, I think very adaptable. Um, but for me, what makes it fun is that they're very intelligent, very motivated, and very passionate about the academics uh, learning. And so that keeps me on my toes. They ask great questions. I'm always trying to think about 
not how can we have a perfect class, but what can we discuss today that maybe a year or five years down the road, they'll think back on this and be like, yeah, like this is starting to click now, right? That sort of mindset of being a lifelong learner. Um, I think that's, that's super cool. And it, that really speaks to me. What does it look like for you when you prepare for class? I think one of the interesting things, obviously students talk a lot about the work that they do to get ready yeah. for class. But one of the things that's interesting when I talk with faculty is they're doing a lot of work too uh, to get ready for that discussion. What does that look like for you? Yeah, it obviously depends on the, the class, um, but let's say for a case discussion. So in addition to obviously reading the case, and some cases are ones that we've written or helped to write, um, we are basically trying to go through what the class might look like in my mind and I'll board out the, you know, what the boards might look like in a real class discussion. We're pretty scripted in terms of like dedicating um, some amounts of time to different parts of the discussion, but we fully expect and almost um, desire things to kind of go off the rails and we use our sort of prep and our teaching guide to make sure that we can bring it back and, and hit the important points. Um, but there is a lot of, uh, let's, there's a lot of prep for each class. Was that new for you teaching in the case method? Had you taught case discussion-based classes new. in the past? Completely new, okay. Completely new for you. How did you get up to speed? That's, so that was one of the best things about Darden. Um, not only was there some formal training and some like teaching seminars that I could attend, um, but the faculty here, my colleagues were so wonderful about inviting me to their classes, allowing me to sit and observe. Um, and that was really some, you know, something that helped me a lot. You can observe some of the best professors in the world teach and ask them questions about like, hey, why did you do this thing? Or I noticed this happened. Was this intentional or did it come off the, uh, off the cuff? Um, and having those discussions with colleagues has been super helpful. Well, let's talk about your research area. So you mentioned that for a long time you thought you were gonna be a, a doctor and we're thinking about that path. And I wonder, did that sort of shape your interest from a research standpoint, what you look at in, in, in your work? Yeah, 100%. Um, so even as a consultant, I was focused in the healthcare industry, uh, so biotech and pharma. Then I spent some time working at Brigham and Women's Hospital in healthcare administration, um, mostly in the surgical services. And so a lot of my research is focused on understanding the healthcare system, the problems that it faces, uh, ways in which organizations can collaborate or innovate um, to improve healthcare delivery or patient outcomes, things like that. And you've also done a lot of work on networks and, and looking at, at yes. networks and, and healthcare. Uh, what do we mean when we talk about networks or what do you mean when you, you talk about networks? Yeah, so most everyone is probably familiar with the term social network, um, but the, the idea of network analysis is that whenever two entities interact, they can form some sort of relationship or we can map an interaction. Um, and as that's true for individuals, we can also do that for organizations. So as organizations, in my case, um, share patients or refer patients to one another, 
they create these massive patterns um, that sort of describe the way that patients move throughout a healthcare system. Um, and that's just one example of a network. Uh, and there are obviously networks in the physical sciences or in chemistry, uh, mathematical networks, engineering networks, like electrical. Um, so all coming from a similar place, but in the sort of social sciences, those interactions are us communicating. Um, maybe we went to the same school, we went to the same workplace um, and understanding how those patterns of ties and relationships can influence our behavior or affect or limit our ability to achieve certain goals. That's sort of the, the way that network analysis applies to my research. It's an interesting sort of social science layer to um, looking at healthcare, healthcare delivery. What do you enjoy about that human element of things, looking at how people relate to each other? I think for me, just relationships are business or business are relationships. I think so much of the world, um, as we all know from living through COVID, the absence of um, certain types of relationships, certain types of interactions can be massively imp impactful. Um, and so for me, the relationships are a really sort of fundamental aspect of our society, transactions, um, social interactions, and then the ability to measure and perform computational analysis on that is where I see, you know, some of the, the science or the math interacting with more of these qualitative aspects, um, you know, the way I see, you know, what's important in the world. All right, so we've gotten through the introduction section. So uh, this is where we're gonna start moving into topical questions. Obviously for our, for our attendees today, uh, Denny's backgrounds in healthcare, this feels like a time where, um, well, uh, healthcare is top of mind for a, a lot of different reasons. And so Denny, you wrote an Ideas to Action article um, last year, kind of looking, looking at a post-pandemic future. And I wonder, in your opinion, how has the pandemic highlighted issues, uh, challenges with the US healthcare system, maybe even exacerbated uh, some of those issues. Yeah, and I would be remiss if I didn't shout out the Ideas Action team and our, our folks here at um, the IBIS, the Institute for Business and Society, uh, for helping put this piece together um, and helping me sort of collect my thoughts on this area. Uh, a lot's changed since the, the time that that article came out. I think um, the one thing that is not surprising to anybody who studies the healthcare system is that the pandemic didn't really fix any problems. <laughs> um, it obviously created new, very important problems for the healthcare system to solve, um, but it has illuminated um, many, some of the uh, deficiencies um, or weaknesses. Um, I think most importantly for, for me, from my vantage point as a researcher, uh, is looking at the fragmentation of the system. And so when you hear stories about uh, capacity at one hospital and a few miles away, they're overflowing. They're, you know, patients on, on beds or stretchers in hallways. Uh, and the lack of communication or the lack of efficient structures to be able to allocate those resources efficiently that's, a, that's an issue. And I'm not saying that's a, you know, unique to the US healthcare system, but um, it seems like something that we should be working to solve. Um, 
And unfortunately, I think there are many obstacles uh, preventing that from, from happening more effectively sort of on a national level. I think there are pockets where it's done very well, um, but you know, we don't necessarily just wanna celebrate those successes. We wanna make sure that we're getting everyone, we're raising the floor across the board to make sure that everyone is, you know, got fair and uh, equitable access to, to good services. Danny, one of the questions that we got in advance was around organizational design affecting sure. healthcare delivery. And it seems like that's something that you've spent some time thinking about, particularly given your work on, on networks. Yeah. Um, ha how have you seen uh, that sort of organizational design element affect healthcare delivery in the U.S., abroad, it seems, maybe even to relate to the com comment you just made? Absolutely. So the word design is one of my favorite words, both um, just on a personal level and, and also um, as a researcher. I think design principles or design thinking is uh, a really powerful framework and a really powerful mindset. Um, and we like to think that the things that we interact with, be they objects or institutions, um, we like to think that there is some grand plan and that there are designers behind the scenes working to ensure that um, things are optimized or things are, you know, well-designed, let's say. Uh, I think one of the things that we realized very quickly about the healthcare system is that it is extremely complex. So even something that sounds complex, like organizational design, is just the tip of the iceberg. Because more so than simply organizational design, we have to be thinking about interorganizational or network design or the way in which um, communities design these sorts of, uh, this sort of infrastructure that's necessary. Um, so I would say on the organizational design standpoint, um, we don't, healthcare is not where we would necessarily look for organizational design innovation per se. Not to say, again, not to say that doesn't happen, but it is a highly institutionalized uh, setting in which there's lots of regulations and really um, structures that have in, been in place in terms of hierarchy or the way things are managed, the way things operate, um, that force the organization to adhere to certain ways of doing things. And so that really constrains the design process. So when we think about, we, we don't often think about like building a new hospital from scratch and redesigning the way in which the healthcare system works through just that one hospital. And I think that's what makes healthcare reform and healthcare improvement so challenging. Even if you build a new hospital, that hospital has to interact with all other parts of the existing system. And so when we're talking about design, we're really talking about redesigning these networks, redesigning the infrastructure or the processes, the supply chains that are in place. Uh, and that's much harder for a single organization to solve. So one of the perennial topics here in the U.S. has been around improving healthcare. It certainly feels like it accelerated post-Affordable Care Act, uh, but yeah. talk about it and talk about it. And, and as you know, the pandemic has highlighted challenges, deficiencies. Um, do you feel like we're making progress? Are there things that you could point to that say, you know what, um, here are some things that I think are, are glimmers or examples where we are improving healthcare? Yeah, we're definitely making progress. And, you know, that's in large part due to the fact that um, there are thousands of very dedicated um, practitioners, uh, physicians, nurses, non-clinical experts, um, researchers, you know, academic, there are people, stakeholders all around the system that are very, very passionate. They, 
you know, willing to take big pay cuts, you know, to do this work because they truly believe um, that this is necessary for society. Um, I think the Affordable Care Act, when it when it passed, uh, gosh, more than a decade ago now, um, it was whatever we think about the actual, you know, nuts and bolts of the policy. And it's a very complex bit of legislation. Um, what it did that I thought was just um, positive, absolutely positive, was that it it thrust that discussion onto the national stage where people were starting to talk about, hey, the healthcare system might not be that great. Or like, yeah, these these problems that I encountered when, um, you know, our first child was born, like maybe that's not just a one off. Maybe this is a systemic sort of thing that, you know, people can be talking about. And so I think that alone um, helped to to move the needle a lot, just making this a topic of conversation. But there are lots of innovations that are happening at the state level, I think, you know, despite the fact that we are predominantly, um, you know, private privately insured through employers system for the majority of the under 65 population. Um, the fact that we do have Medicare at the federal level, Medicaid um, and other um, sorts of, I guess, government run support at the state level, that gives us some opportunity to run some interesting experiments. So there's some really innovative things that have been happening in states across the country. Um, and then, you know, like one of the, the contexts that I study, the Medicare Accountable Care, Pro, Accountable Care Organization Program, uh, as well as other sort of similar value-based payment uh, systems that private and public insurers are running, that's really great innovation. Like these ideas were put out, maybe the genesis of ideas are more decades old, but really the, the language of value-based care and ACOs, something that was, you know, percolating in the early 2000s, um, and, you know, better late than never, but we're actively trying these experiments, collecting really important data, understanding uh, how we can save money while not compromising the, the, the quality and the sort of eff efficacy of care that we're delivering to patients. These are all really, really important improvements that um, I don't think would have happened if not for the work of, you know, many of the people that I look up to and, and cite in my papers, uh, really, really pushing pushing for change and, and the need to have this discussion. Do you think that there are global examples? So outside the US, you know, when we talk about improving healthcare here in the United States, oftentimes people say, well, look at these countries, um, look at yeah. these other places, look how they deliver health, healthcare. Uh, do you think that there are, are countries, examples that we can pull from as we think about improving healthcare here in the United States? Yeah, so I, I will caveat this by saying that my um, understanding of um, global healthcare systems, especially on the, the payment, the reimbursement side, uh, was much deeper about 15 years ago when I was a, a consultant in this space. But um, absolutely, like this is without a doubt, I think one of the most important things that uh, we need to do, but any, any really any country. And uh, so, for example, when in 2007, that was probably the first time I really uh, fully came to grips with the fact that there are systemic problems in the healthcare system uh, in America that require business solutions, um, not just you know medical medical solutions or public health solutions, but real business solutions. And a lot of the examples that people gave, they would con contrast what's going on in the U.S. to places like Canada, Australia, the U.K. Um, um, 
and then more recently, I think, you know, with COVID, what, what happened in South Korea, Taiwan, some of the, so Asian countries that are smaller, maybe more homogenous population, uh, technologically uh, sort of sophisticated. And while I'm not saying that we should look to those countries and kind of import over or just copy paste, I think we would be we would be at a significant disadvantage if we didn't observe what happened there, understand what are the sort of social structures and the sort of incentives in place that made something work um, and what, what are the deficiencies, what are the obstacles that they faced and use those learnings to apply, maybe if not at a national level or even a state level, at a community level, right? So like healthcare systems in a community or a region can look to those examples and see, is there something that we can borrow or can we implement? Um, great example is that I know the, the NHS in the UK takes a lot of heat for, you know, this sort of putting a cost on the value of life, but really they, they set the stage for us to be having these important conversations about, is it worth it to, for the, for a society to spend millions or tens of millions of dollars on drugs that are not necessarily going to improve a patient's quality of life, uh, and may only extend their life by a month or two. And in the US, you know, we think, you know, protect life and save life over everything. But I think on a global stage, the fact that people are realizing like, look, the cost of these drugs is, is too high. It's not sustainable to do it in this way. So either we force the drug companies to um, charge less, or we have to do something here to sort of restrict access to these very, very expensive and maybe unproven um, from an ethic or a cost benefit standpoint therapies. And I think for us to listen to those conversations and figure out, you know, where we're going to sort of draw the line, that's, that's crucial. We cannot just shut, shut ourselves off to, to learning from other countries um, because at this point, the evidence is very clear. We may be the leaders in terms of innovation. And I mean, the COVID vaccine is a clear example. We have great access to these vaccines because that innovation and that research was done here. Uh, and so, but in order to benefit from that and to benefit from um, the amazing resources and, and institutions that we have, we also need to recognize that like going from that point to good healthcare for all Americans, there are a lot of problems, a lot of gaps within that. And so we shouldn't be paying more for worse healthcare, right? That it, if that's what we're, you know, if we're trying to say that the US healthcare system is the best in the world, we need to, we need to do that on, on all metrics, not just we have the best drugs or, you know, we have the, one of the best hospitals in the world. So Denny, I'm, I'm curious, I wanna come back to a comment that you, that you made as you started off that answer is in, maybe 2007, you said you realized that business was a really important part of, yeah. of the solution. What led you to that conclusion? <laughs> well, it was very actually very simple. Um, so it was a, this was a class I took uh, in my senior year uh, at Harvard called the Quality of Healthcare in America, uh, you know, quite bluntly. It was run by um, former um, head of the uh, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, uh, Don Berwick, uh, Warner Slack and David Blumenthal. So really just leaders, visionaries in, in this field of pushing healthcare reform. Um, it was actually run uh, in collaboration with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which Dr. Berwick um, helped to start. Uh, one of the, the speakers 
that they brought in was Dr. Jim Kim, who uh, president of Dartmouth, ran um, WHO, um, WHO. I might be misremembering that, but Dr. Jim Kim, um, he gave a just a fascinating talk and I had an opportunity to um, chat with him briefly afterwards. And I, I mentioned to him that like, I'm very interested in these big messy problems in healthcare. And I asked, you know, what, what sort of training do you think, um, you know, would help solve those problems? And, and he asked me what I was doing after college. And I told him I was going into strategy consulting in biotech and pharma. Um, and he, you know, his eyes kind of lit up and I'll, he said, good, like we need people, we need consultants, we need people with management experience who know how to lead teams and to develop projects and execute things. Um, that's what we need um, on a global stage, you know, to take care of these problems because it's not just about being the best doctor or being the best, you know, uh, patient caregiver. It's about understanding these problems at a slightly higher level um, and figuring out what are the incentives what are the inefficiencies in the value chains that prevent our best efforts or our best intentions from translating to, you know, better outcomes for patients and communities. So I, I sort of credit that class and, and that conversation with him for really um, convincing me that, like, hey, maybe I'm not completely selling out here, um, that this, this next path for me is going to be very impactful for the work that I want to do in the future. I'm going to come back to another one of your ideas to action articles, um, one that you wrote about the rise of retail uh, healthcare yeah. um, clinics, retail clinics, and healthcare delivery here in the United States. What got you interested in this particular particular topic? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so the the genesis of the paper was a, a water cooler conversation that I had with uh, one of my um, one of my mentors at the University of Minnesota, Gurnita Vasudeva Singh. Um, she had been working on just collecting some data on retail clinics with a, a colleague of ours uh, who was at Johns Hopkins, uh, is now in um, Toronto. And well, retail clinics in the U.S. started in Minnesota. Um, and so in 2000, they, the first one started in Minnesota. And it was just a very interesting thing from a theoretical standpoint. So it was a new industry is emerging. And it was a, it was an innovation in the sense of in organizational design in that now all of a sudden we are designing these clinics to live inside supermarkets and big box superstores to provide more than just the basic flu shot to actually provide the basic primary care, uh, primary medical services that you might normally go to a nurse practitioner um, or a primary care physician in a private practice or in a hospital setting to address. And we, you know, we took a, a really strong interest in that because how often do we see sort of, I guess, new organizational forms or new industry emergence kind of in the healthcare setting? It was, and because of my interests um, in healthcare and my co-author's interests in the sort of institutional changes and the sort of um, uh, evolution that happens uh, amongst different types of organizations and organizational fields. Uh, that was sort of the genesis of the project. Um, I think coming full circle with the Ideas to Action article, um, I've been a customer or a patient of, you know, these retail clinics since my time as a grad student in Minnesota. And I think for many of us, these retail clinics were in large part how we got care during COVID. 
Um, so not only did they assist with testing, um, but they provided web or telemedicine services to help with diagnosis or providing consultations. And then now with uh, vaccine distribution. And it is a fascinating, fascinating thing to see the retailification of some healthcare services, something that traditionally has been so guarded and protected by the traditional medical establishment to see bits and pieces of that slowly start to kind of become more commercialized or maybe commoditized in a sense where patients are now, it's now no longer such a hassle to some right now to this day, you sometimes have to pick up your phone and talk to somebody to make an appointment. Um, here, everything can be done electronically, can be relatively seamless. You can walk in, in, in many instances. And so I think this trend will continue. And so for us, as we started looking into it more and more, we thought this is, this is probably, you know, part of this new evolution of some aspects of healthcare in which maybe patients will take a little bit more ownership of their health management because some of these things are easier to do now. They don't necessarily require expert knowledge, expert consultation for everything. So I take it you see that as a, as a real positive development from yeah. an accessibility standpoint, um, people maybe being more engaged with their personal health? Absolutely, I do. I think one of the one of the real issues in healthcare, and this is not a US only problem, this is a global problem, um, but one of the real issues with healthcare is, uh, or medicine, I should say, maybe more specifically, is that there's a huge knowledge gap or information asymmetry um, that we as patients, I think, are conditioned to believe that we are not sort of in control of the diagnosis and treatment and management of our health conditions, that we go to these experts and these experts tell us what to do and we follow their instructions. Um, and I think the more that we break out of that mindset and that we treat the physicians as, yes, they're experts, but we are partners in their ability to manage and treat our ailments. Uh, the more we take ownership of that and the more that, you know, physicians see us as partners as well and not just non-compliant uh, complainers, you know, who come in once a month and, you know, they have to repeat the same instructions again, like make sure you do this. And then they kind of expect that that patient is not going to do that. Um, the more we can change that sort of relationship, change that, that dynamic, I think the better off we're going to be. Let's talk about mental health. This has been an, certainly an ongoing conversation, much longer than the, the past year. Um, access to mental health resources, counseling, um, having people sort of tap in to networks that can support them. But this past year, it's really accelerated this conversation as people yeah. have had to socially distance uh, from others, uh, may not necessarily be around friends and family in the same kind of way. Um, so I wonder, do you have any thoughts on how we might address what is a growing need, it's a need that's existed for some time, it's really expanded in the past year, how might we provide more counseling, more, more mental health services uh, to folks? Yeah, and this, the, the mental health aspect of this is, um, you know, something that I care deeply about, both from a, I guess, a personal standpoint, but also thinking um, more in terms of the, the business or the efficacy of our uh, of our healthcare system. Um, on a personal level, I think uh, for myself and everyone on this call, we felt um, we felt the sort of negative effects of COVID in some way that sort of isolationism, or even if we're constantly on Zoom, constantly talking, 
um, just that lack of being around our friends and family or, or even just the people at the grocery store, right? These, these masks and not, not being able to uh, interact in the ways that we normally do takes a significant toll. And, um, you know, one of the issues with mental health is that, well, maybe, maybe more than just one, there's one, there's a stigma attached to it. And I think that that has fortunately gotten much better over time, especially as uh, for better or for worse, uh, celebrities, professional athletes, you know, people that have a more of a public stage, they are they've become more outspoken about their struggles with these issues. And I think it's allowed especially young people um, to feel more comfortable, um, you know, just acknowledging even for themselves that maybe this is something that they need to deal with. Um, the other aspect of it, though, is that mental health, uh, and healthcare in general, but especially mental health, is something that is not is not equitably accessible, right? It's not. It's something that maybe maybe those of us who have more privilege, more economic resources, the luxury of time, that we have greater access and uh, awareness of. Um, whereas I feel like perhaps those that mental health services could help the most um, are those that don't have those things right now. And I think that even the awareness that this is an issue that can be um, not necessarily treated, but managed and that taking ownership of mental health can um, be a performance enhancer. Um, I think that sort of awareness is not uh, evenly distributed throughout society. And I, and I truly believe so on more of a personal note, um, you know, I've uh, used mental health services uh, for a few years now, um, dating back to my time in grad school. And that's sort of the way that I have treated it, that it is, uh, in some cases, it's necessary. In some cases, you know, you're going through a, a time and you just need to um, access the, these opportunities and, and these experts' ability to um, listen and, and counsel you on certain issues. But um, on the average week, it's almost like going to the gym. Right, it's an opportunity to sort of exercise that part of your brain and your your sort of heart that you may not have the the capacity or the the sort of leeway to on a on a you know within the normal day. And so for me, I, I always encourage uh, friends, family, students that like, hey, if you haven't thought about this, you might want to try it out. Like, I significantly believe it's a performance enhancer. So if you were leading a healthcare organization right now, um, what would you be thinking about? What would, what would be oh, yeah. on, on your mind, Denny? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously in the immediate term, we're, we're, we're dealing with COVID and trying to figure out um, a lot of the things that I mentioned um, earlier on. So like, how can we, so one, right? If you're working in an organization, your first priority is that organization. So how can we make sure that, you know, we are using our resources, uh, both the, the sort of physical infrastructure and our people to the best of their ability. And, and again, how are we making sure that we're taking care of our people, you know, making sure that they're, um, they're doing okay, uh, because that's, that's the organization. Um, but really, you know, I'm thinking about how can we work better with other organizations, right? How can we leverage the sort of uh, collective resources of our community of the system? And then I'm thinking about ways in which we can use technology. Um, so that has been the other, you know, massive change over the last year is that telemedicine has now, um, that's become commonplace. And so like when we say telemedicine, right? Like sometimes uh, I guess the history of that term even is just like phone consults, but you know, the 
you know, using Doxy and using the video conferencing, um, using phones and different apps to uh, assist in diagnosis and to provide more detailed clinical information um, to, to physicians and, and other practitioners. I think that's, that's amazing. And as if I was leading an organization, that would be one of the things that I'm, I'm really trying to explore and really trying to get ahead of because not only has COVID accelerated this, I think it's created this opportunity for, for us to experiment a little bit and, and really figure out like, are there things that we can change right now, you know, in the midst of all of this, um, not necessarily chaos, but in the midst of all of this flurry of activity, can, can we maybe sneak in a couple of, you know, innovations or maybe try out something that, you know, maybe otherwise would have gone through layers and layers of bureaucracy, you know, is, is now the right time to sort of push for something or make an investment in some, some new R&D or some new um, medical tech. So that's what I'd be thinking about. A little bit of a follow-up question. This comes from the Q&A um, and also may involve a little bit of prognostication on, on your part. So hopefully you feel you feel comfortable breaking out the crystal ball for this one. So uh -huh. uh, what lessons do you think that the uh, U.S. healthcare system, uh, healthcare organizations might take from COVID sort of going forward? Oh, do sure. You think, do you think there's things that when we look back on this experience, these are the things that, that might stand out? Yeah, well, I think... <laughs> Uh, the most basic one is pandemic preparedness, right? So incidentally, uh, when I was a consultant, one of the projects that I remember working on was developing uh, forecast models. And it's sort of basically this sort of pandemic scenario planning exercise for a client that was involved in uh, the development of drugs and vaccines for the flu. And so you know, we talked about the fact that governments tend to have stockpiles of these things. And oftentimes their stockpiles expire and they don't realize these things. And so I think one, this has heightened awareness that, hey, something like this could happen. And now that it's kind of top of mind, um, I think people are more likely to believe like it could happen again. And so there will be better pandemic preparedness uh, planning, both at the national level, state level, um, but then also just individual organizations or healthcare systems. I think that's that's first of all. Number two is I think we are going to recognize um, more and more the need for in integration among healthcare organizations. Um, it, it's never going to be perfect. Like we're, I think we're a long ways away, and I, th I think in, in some ways it's almost impractical to suggest that the entire U.S. be one integrated system. It's going to be incredibly difficult to achieve. More realistically, I think on a more regional or community level or a state level better integration there, interoperability of electronic medical records, for instance, um, the ability for patients to easily access their electronic medical information or to have their information be electronic in the first place. I think these are things that will hopefully be accelerated because, I mean, let's be honest that those of us in the U.S. who have been vaccinated here, we have a little piece of cardboard um, that someone has written on in pen. It's not protected in any way. And that is our only proof of vaccination. It can so easily be counterfeited. It can so easily be manipulated or destroyed or lost um, that we shouldn't be satisfied with that. We shouldn't be satisfied that we have to carry around a piece of paper in 2021 when we're doing all of this online and on Zoom um, and cryptocurrencies booming. You know, like we're in a very digital age and there's really no reason why this should be acceptable for the future. I, I, we can understand, right? It's a... Maybe it's a stopgap. That's the best way to do it, you know, most expeditiously. But 
uh, in the future, we can do better. Um, and so I think we will, um, I think we will, and I think it's shine, it, it's this experience has shown a light on the fact that um, we are, we are behind the times um, in many ways, like the, the time of paper records and the time of uh, mistakes due to, um, you know, these traditional ways and the inability for organizations and people to change, uh, that's got to go. So question about your work with Darden students. I imagine those students who are really passionate about healthcare may seek you out and want to talk to you about your background and also maybe take your class. Sure. Uh, how have you seen Darden students who are passionate about healthcare get engaged with this work, either while they're at school, in the summers? I mean, what, what do you see? Yeah, that's um, so I've only been here now two years. Um, but even in the last two years, uh, I've been pleasantly surprised to see the number of people who are you know, coming from healthcare backgrounds or are you know, very passionate about doing work in healthcare. I think it's increased, or at least maybe you know, more of them have um, sought me out or I've been able to interact with more of them. Um, definitely, I think uh, at the school level, there are more and more faculty now as well who have expertise in healthcare, who are very interested in either um, learning more or using it as a research context. And I think that's super interesting. Um, and you know, for let's say for our residential MBA students, there's the Darden, the healthcare club. Um, and I know that uh, I've been in touch with a lot of the students that are part of that in ways that we can kind of expand the scope of their activities beyond just you know, organizing um, some speakers from industry um, to maybe have more of an impact um, learning about things amongst ourselves or um, I've had a couple of students that I've worked with um, over the summers to help me on my research with accountable care organizations. Um, I think there will hopefully be opportunities to engage with the, the local health systems here, which hopefully post pandemic, uh, I'll be able to explore a little bit more fully. Um, but so yeah, there, I think there, you know, it's not the the healthcare path or the healthcare track right, is obviously not as well established as maybe the one for investment banking or consulting, um, but it's there, it's healthy. And I think it's uh, it's about time it's, it's starting to grow. And I think there's clear signs of that. I will say from the admissions end of things, we meet a ton of prospective students who are passionate about this topic. And I feel like it's really accelerated in, in recent years. And even, even this past past year with everything go, going on in the world, if you are coming to business school and wanting to have an impact, healthcare is one of those things that touches everybody's lives. Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned something earlier and it relates to a question in, in the Q&A about this sort of way that healthcare works in the U.S. that we would focus really on research development. Um, and this is where the United States really shines a uh, global stage. Um, developing countries, uh, you don't see quite the same level of investment perhaps in, in research and development. Uh, you may see really robust entrepreneurial communities uh, around other things, um, maybe finance, investment. Uh, but um, why do you think it works this way in the US and maybe it's a bit different in, in other countries, particularly developing countries? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really uh, interesting, important and very complex question. Um, I'll do my best to try to give a short answer. Um, and again, like, by no means um, do I claim any expertise in, in why global healthcare systems are the way they are, or even in the, the, in the sense of like the scope of pharmaceutical lobbying, let's say in the US. But um, so the short answer is money. The short answer, it, it really is money. Um, the US is obviously the biggest healthcare market in the, in the world. Um, and part of that is because our prices are extremely high. 
And part of the reason our prices are extremely high is that the government does not force companies. They do not price regulate. They do not price control. And so while, let's say, individual insurers uh, in the U.S. may negotiate with um, drug companies to have particular price points for, for different types of therapies, that's not enforced at the national level as it is in many other countries. Uh, and for that reason, that's the reason why people sort of tongue in cheek say that America is subsidizing healthcare for the rest of the world, um, because a lot of the, the, the costs of R&D are recouped in the American market. Um, and so I think, you know, that's, that's really the, the, the sort of long and short of it is that um, it's just money. Uh, and so for a, also for a, you know, from the perspective of an international um, drug company, um, one, the, the structure of the industry itself, and here's, you know, something that you would learn in core strategy, right? The structure of the industry is that you have these massive multinational, you know, major pharmaceutical and biotech companies. And then you have your very, very fragmented pipeline of smaller startups or smaller, more specialized shops that, Oftentimes, they do not have the resources and can never have the resources of the large manufacturers to market, distribute, do run the clinical trials. And so that's why you see so much M&A activity in that space. And so for an international firm, like if you know, you're really trying to, if it costs millions or billions of dollars to do R&D, you're not going to be able to do that alone. And you're not going to be able to recoup that investment without accessing the U.S. market. And what's the easiest way to access the U.S. market is to work with a U.S. company that is already well established and knows how to, you know, maneuver and and play the game here. So, Denny, what are you researching right now? Uh, what are you What are you curious about? What are you looking at? Yeah, so I'm continuing my research on um, looking at healthcare delivery networks, both in the accountable care organization space, um, but then with some. Uh, colleagues and my uh, grad school advisors in Minnesota and Michigan, uh, looking at provider networks in uh, the care of different surgical procedures. So my work in hospital administration was in the surgical services and um, a lot of um, surgeons and, and people around the areas of surgery are really interested in these ideas of, of value and uh, value-based care. And so we are, we're looking at the ways in which we might be able to identify uh, network interventions to way to where we can, you know, make small changes in, in terms of like policy or procedure that might help reshape networks or um, understand the ways in which uh, particular patterns of interaction might lead to some positive or negative outcome. So that's uh, that's the main you know sort of pillar of the work that I'm I'm doing. And then um, on the side, this this actually this past year I started to. Uh, become very, very interested in um, blockchain technology and cryptocurrency, um, as well as uh, some of the more, I guess, in the popular media these days, like the, the NFT space and marketplaces. Um, and that originated because, um, well, one, I think there was a, a NBA Top Shot product, which uh, I'm a huge basketball fan. And as a kid, I was a card collector. And so I uh, became interested in that. But when I, when I looked at what the data was, the, the platform and what was going on, I saw it as maybe a microcosm of what might happen in society as we think about the way in which um, our, our cities and businesses are coming back post-COVID or as people get vaccinated. So the idea that when we went into lockdown, 
there were all of these transactions and social networks that all of a sudden disappeared. And how resilient are these? How, how likely are they to bounce back in the way uh, that they used to be? Or if they're gonna come back in a different way, what are some of the things that help us understand why the newer or the sort of emerging um, networks look slightly different? And so my idea here is to try to collect data on these sorts of marketplaces where there's very detailed transactional information to, and then see what happens when these marketplaces, you know, go under maintenance or you know arbitrarily shut down for some random event. Um, to see how likely are these sorts of networks of transactions to bounce back in the same way, um, or you know if they look completely different. And so that that's a that's an area that it's still very very early stages, but it's uh, it's it's been very interesting. Well, Denny, we've had three office hour conversations. Uh, we've had three discussions of cryptocurrency yeah. here, or at least references to cryptocurrency. So the streak continues. <laughs> uh, we've got a good question here in the Q&A about any advice you would share with someone um, who's pursuing an MBA, thinking about an MBA and wants to go into healthcare. Anything that they should be thinking about? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so first of all, this is a piece of advice I got from... Um, so my, my former boss at the hospital is that if you are passionate about healthcare and you want to, especially if you want to do strategy or you want to do leadership in a healthcare organization, uh, you have to understand operations, not surgical operations, but operations from a, like a supply chain and ops perspective. Because if you don't understand the day-to-day, -day, if you don't understand um, who's doing the work, how they're doing the work, how that impacts patients, then, you're, then you've got your, your eye on the wrong target, right? Um, so the same way in which in many industries, we focus on customer centricity, in the healthcare space, it's patient centricity overall. And I think if, um, I, I truly believe that if you lose sight of that, then you lose sight of why you're in the healthcare industry in the first place. If you're just in the healthcare industry for the money, uh, I don't know what to tell you, you're, that might not be the best decision. Um, I think, <laughs> That is, there's tons of money in the healthcare industry, right? It is the, it is the biggest industry um, there is in the country. But I think that ops perspective is that you, you really do have to have a clear understanding of how this work gets done. And that means sometimes getting away from your computer, um, getting out of your chair, stop, you know, when you have your spreadsheets, you should be asking yourself, where does this data come from? Or if I see this trend, what is it in practice that is, is causing this trend to look this way? And I think that's, that's good advice for anybody, but I think it's especially important in healthcare because if you don't understand that, you're not gonna be able to communicate with physicians, with nurses, with other people who are on the ground doing the work. Like they're not gonna give you the time of day if they don't feel like you understand what, what their lives are like and how hard the work is. So I think that's absolutely important. So any books, uh, movies, anything you'd recommend for people who've come to the talk today and interested, curious, learn a little bit more uh, about the things yeah. you're talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. And so I think a great place to start um, is uh, Atul Gawande's books. And in particular, I think uh, his book, Better, um, is, a, is a really nice place to start. Um, all of his, I think all of his writing is, is really well done and very fascinating. It's a way for the average person to, to learn a ton about healthcare, but also to um, get a deep appreciation for the types of things that, you know, a surgeon thinks about. I mean, he's, 
Um, he was a surgeon at the hospital I used to work at. And um, I mean, he became so well known for, for all of these works, but, you know, it, it's just fascinating to see him just like walking through the, the ORs and scrubs. And you forget that like this guy, all of these learnings and these insights are coming from his practice in medicine, like his experiences there. And again, going back to the understanding the ops piece, right? The ability for him to generate these insights and have this broader impact on a global level, it comes from his deep understanding of what his work is and the, the constraints or the context in which he's working. And I think that's a fantastic place to start. Um, there are other, um, he's got some other pieces in the New Yorker and then the author Sandeep Johar. Um, I think his first book was called, uh, intern or I may be confusing the two, but, um, Atul Gawande, Sandeep Johar, those, those two authors, those two doctors, um, really influenced my thinking about the practice of medicine and the healthcare system. Um, and then I would encourage folks to, uh, try to see, when you are interacting with the healthcare system yourself, think about that from an organizational standpoint. Think about not just from your perspective as a patient, but your perspective as a customer. What were, what were the processes and the structures in place? And really try to you know, um, see the business uh, in your daily life. And I think you'll start to see like, like why, does, why is it this way? Um, you know, like, couldn't this be a little bit better? Uh, and I think that, that will be a great place to start. Well, Denny, I want to thank you for your time, your expertise, your energy this morning. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, everybody. And that was my interview with Denny Kemp, a member of the Strategy, Entrepreneurship, and Ethics faculty here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.